Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who you really are. Well, hi, everyone. Thank you for being part of Flip Your Lid. I I know I'll probably say this every time, but I'm like ridiculously little girl excited with who I have with me today. Molly Barker is a part of what we're doing today, and I've known her for a very long time. We have a lot in common. I wish we had more in common because she's an exceptional, exceptional woman. But she's about to just enlighten us and just blow it up because whatever she does just becomes something bigger than what you'd ever imagine. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about Molly. She's the founder of Girls on the Run and a globally recognized role model for positive change. Molly Barker inspires all people to embrace their individual strengths, ask the hard questions of themselves, and realize their potential to change the world. Molly is a founder of Girls and Runs International, the program that uses running to empower girls. A four-time Hawaii Iron Person triathlete, Molly used her background in social work, counseling, and teaching to develop the program. Since Barker founded it in 1996, it has served two million girls and earned her numerous accolades, including the Daily Point of Light Award given by President Obama and former President Bush in a ceremony at the White House. After retiring from the organization in 2013, she was asked to join the Bipartisan Policy Center's Commission on Political Reform, a Washington group seeking ways to bridge the political divide in Congress. By the time it had 29 members of the commission made recommendations, however, Parker had decided the real problem was bigger than Congress. It was all of us. That is when she formulated an idea for the Red Boot Way, a new organization whose name was inspired by the gift of a pair of red boots from her daughter, Helen. Red Boot Way groups have now popped up in cities all over America and serve as a great tool and method to resolve conflict and bring greater understanding between people, whether it's in the workplace, communities, or in personal relationships. You can find that at theredbootway.org. Molly's a mother of two children, James and Helen. When asked recently what her mom does for a living, Helen responded, my mom listens and loves people for her living. What a great explanation. Molly Barker, friend of mine for a long time, an inspiration. Welcome to Flip Your Lid. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's so great to have you here. I know you're out there changing the world and you could be doing anything right now and you're spending time with us. So on behalf of my audience, thank you so much. Oh, I always learn something. You know, whenever you say things out loud, you hear what's been kind of marinating in your own brain. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? It's so true. Okay, so we're going to just kick this off. We're going to start this the same question we ask everybody, and that is what life events or experiences flipped your lid And tell us a little bit about what measures you've had to take to reconnect to who you really are. So you gave me this question before this podcast. So I've I've been thinking about it. And uh, the the moment that flipped my lid is the moment that changed everything and is the basis for Girls on the Run and everything that followed after that. So interrupt me, of course, because I can get going, you know. Go, girl, go. It was uh, July 7th, 1993. The moment was so important that I remember the date. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the reason that day is important is the day before had been a 
day of great darkness where I just felt like I had dug a hole so deep for myself around my addiction to alcohol and other drugs and just couldn't see my way out. So Mm. fortunately, I I made it through that evening. And the next day, July 7th, set off on a run. About four o'clock in the afternoon, there was a huge thunderstorm off on the horizon you know, lightning and thunder and the wind whipping up and sometime during this run, and I actually know the exact spot, I just had this epiphany where, you know, giving it words kind of takes away from the the momentousness of the moment, you know, but I just kind of became aware that I was not the words I was not the things, I was not the roles, I was not all of the things that had been described of me, you know, like mother, uh, I wasn't a mother yet, um, alcoholic, employee, woman, all all those things. I was just an abundance of light and wonderfulness, you know, and amazingness and realized that for 32 years of my life, I'd been trying to bundle all that up in a series of words that did such limited justice to the amazingness that we all are. And when I kind of came to and came out of that moment, I thought, now that's a life, I knew it was a life changing moment and I wasn't sure how it was going to change things. I just knew that it would. So that was my, also my first day of sobriety. Oh, that's, that's amazing. So, so curious because I mean, really a lot of us have to work the 12 steps, do years of therapy, Gardner, some emotional sobriety to get to where you started, which is that we are not the conditioned self, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not truly an alcoholic. I became an alcoholic because I became who I wasn't. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah. And so you yeah. got that. It took me like 20 years to get that. You got that before you even got really into your sobriety. Well, actually, I think it had been, I think a lot about the the little moments the little dots on the timeline of everything that came to that. It was like they were all primers. They were all preparing Mm. me for this moment, you know? So I tried to get, I actually first encountered the the rooms 12 step program when I was 17. So it it just didn't take, I wasn't ready, you know? And then there were numerous other times, but for whatever reason, all of this kind of came crumbling down so far that it it happened. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Can we, can we go down that path for a second? Because, you know, yeah. I got taken to AA meetings at very early ages, very young yeah. ages. People will drop me off at AA meetings. And just to hear you say it didn't take I me, mean, just it, it was so different for me to be young and people to think I was there as someone's daughter, people thinking I'm there. Like, like it was easy for it not to take for me because like, I didn't feel like I qualified Anyway, I didn't feel a sense of belonging anywhere besides in the bottle. And so I'm just curious if that was similar for you or if it was just a matter of not not knowing what to do next to be sober, or is it more of just not feeling a part of the 12-step program? At first, it was not. Well, I'd been going to AA meetings since I was very tiny because my mom was going to AA meetings. So right. we would go and I would sit in the lobby of wherever the meeting was, or I'd actually sit in the meeting and read a book or something, you know, when I was very young, you know, fifth, sixth grade, something like that. But then when I started going at age 17, um, I had a similar experience. I look around the room and it was mostly older people, you know, Mm -hmm. and I kept comparing, I kept saying, I'm not like this. I wasn't looking for the similarities, you know, Mm -hmm. and I kept saying, I'm not, well, I'm not that, you know, I haven't ever had a, you know, 
been drunk on the street or, you know, I just found all the differences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I was also going because people told me I needed to go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. So, <laughs> yeah, I bet they were. So what, what was that like for you to have a mom? Because I've listened to some of your TED Talks, right? And yeah. so I know part of it is having a mom who's a runner, having a mom who's, you know, recovered alcoholic, active alcoholic, recovered alcoholic. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about the mixture of that and the influence that had in your life when you're drinking? Totally. So, um, yeah, my mom was uh, a pretty bad drunk until I was in fourth grade. Mm. So uh, there met parts of third and fourth grade that I, I have literally no memory of. And that was, you know, the bigger me just protecting myself from a lot of the pain right. and fear. Yeah. So when she got sober, it was like, wow, suddenly the blinds were open and everything became technicolor. Um, it didn't, though, immediately heal a lot of the shame and the um, triggers, the, the trauma that I'd experienced as a young child. Mm. So there was this sort of blissful state from about the age of nine to 15 when my mom was sober and I was young and we just two peas in a pod and she started running and I was running with her. But then I took my first drink, you know, when I was in ninth or 10th grade. And that was the, the last she wrote. You know, the experience yeah. was so intoxicating, both emotionally and physically, that I wanted more of it. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, I think a lot about how my mom, the what she had to go through to watch, you know, yeah. this happening when she was only five or six years sober. I'm sure it was hard. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting, right? Because you're watching your mom, who is your picture of security. Yes. Intoxicated. And then she watches her little girl who's now intoxicated. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I, I, you would, the, the logical brain would say, well, I saw what she went through. Yeah. So that certainly would mean I wouldn't drink. Right. Or whatever. But that, that logical brain isn't part of what caused me to have an addiction. You know? Right. So, right. Yeah. Right? And I think it's important for people to know that like alcoholism is really not proven to be genetic it is very much proven to be a generational trauma mm -hmm. and that it's not a there's nothing logical about addiction mm -mm. you know there's so much that happens and when and ptsd is the only anxiety disorder directly correlated to alcoholism okay. and so to have that level of trauma in third or your whole life but third and fourth grade mm -hmm. like your brain is primed and you're gonna have a different reaction to alcohol than someone else would so there's there's nothing logical about that right yeah yeah yeah, I mean, I was definitely, definitely primed for it, yeah. you know. And as I've gotten older, I've noticed a lot of, uh, I feel like a lot of my life, and I'm finally getting there at age 60, has been managing that trauma and, and yeah. actually emerging from the trauma in a bigger way, not just managing it, but, you right. know, using it. To the transformation the from it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Can you talk a little bit? Because first of all, Girls That Run is beyond successful, right? And everyone, everyone knows that and so touched by that. And, and so looking at starting mm -hmm. a program that has that magnitude and that impact on people's lives, that affecting your trauma versus where you are now can like, how does all that come together for you? You know, I remember driving down Queens Road in Charlotte. Um, the organization was probably four or five years old. And um, I think probably because Queens Road was a road I drove down frequently as a child, I just had this sort of realization that Girls on the Run was an incredible gift to me personally and to a lot of the women that were involved as a way to heal some of the trauma we'd all experienced. So mm -hmm. while the girls were... 
learning life skills and other ways to cope with adolescence and adulthood, I was learning them too. And it was, it was like I got to redo my third and fourth grade year again, over and over and over, you know? And um, yeah, so that's definitely in hindsight, a big part of it. It it wasn't consciously why I started it, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Is that part of the how you decided the age range for Girls on the Run subconsciously having to do with your level of trauma? Now, who knows? Maybe I was attracted to uh, research that indicates that when you touch, that's a good touch point for kids. That's right. at third, fourth, and fifth grade before mm-hmm. they've developed hard skills and kind of the grooves that, that indoctrination, you know, they're still malleable. Their thoughts right. are. Um, so I don't know whether I was attracted to that research or whether the research is accurate but either way that was the initial group we worked with and of course now girls on the run works with middle schoolers and even has you know high school girls come back and coach the younger ones yeah absolutely but the whole idea because this is you know you know famous peter levine quote is that trauma does not have to be a life sentence that we can do more than heal we can be transformed Yes. Right. We can be repurposed in it. And that's so much of what Girls and Run has done for you and, and countless others is part of the repurposing. Mm-hmm. And so you you have your MSW, correct? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I bring that up is that uh, if you're willing to speak into that, because I tell people mm-hmm. all the time, we get this impression that MSW is is not a valuable degree for some reason. And I think it's one of the most valuable degrees you can have. And the different things you can do with it. And you're part of my case in point when I tell people that, Mm -hmm. that it's not just DSS, which is still a wonderful place to work. There's so Mm -hmm. much you can do with this degree. Yeah. My, um, one of the most powerful things that uh, Jack Richmond at the school of social work in Chapel Hill said to me once was that what he loved about social work is it starts where the people are, Mm. you know? So it's, it's, it's taking into account everything, the sort of internal workings of a person, the environment, um, the culture, the the societal expectations, all of it. And Girls on the Run really is sort of the nice integrated blend of all of that. Yeah, very integrated. A lot of people don't understand that when I started the program, it was as much for the girls as it was looking for a, a societal shift in the way girls and women perceive themselves and are perceived. And my thinking was that if we got enough girls that wouldn't buy into these stereotypes, mm-hmm. then the stereotypes would see, ex- cease to have any power. Right. And I think we're seeing that now, which is yeah. very exciting. You right. know? The stereotypes about weight, about beauty, about your the, the, the summation of you is based on how you look and not what you provide, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and also the people pleasing, you know, that yes. good little girls don't get angry and, yeah. you know, all of those that don't, right. don't speak up or, you know, experience all their emotions. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's been so wonderful in this decade to see women really coming to the fore with all of themselves, not just the, the pretty parts, you know? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a horrible message. And even as a feminist, I'm still indoctrinated with it. Me too. Me too. And, you know, even the fluidity around gender now. See, so, you know, I remember, so I have a daughter who is 22 and she doesn't define herself really as a girl. I mean, she uses she and her as her pronouns, but she just sees herself as a person. Right. And 
you know, I think there's so much room for conversation and growth around that too, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Which I'm sure it's just interesting because you're, it's girls on the run for you. I know. Right. And then it becomes more fluid as we learn more about what does it really mean? I know. You know, and I think all the time about how, like when I go to heaven, like it's not gender, it's not sexual orientation, it's not eye color, right? And yet that's where we put so much emphasis, mm-hmm. you know, on the things that we won't won't last for eternity. I know, and that may may not may even be uh, culturally described inaccurately at this point. Like, I mean, you know, or not inaccurately, but just you know, we use these words to categorize each other. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting now that I'm, I've been away from Girls on the Run since 2013. Um, and it's been, it'll be interesting to see how it flows over the next decades, you know, with all that's right. going on around gender. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about self-connection and your own emotional needs? Because... You know, I know that when you're at the top of an organization, it's a place that actually we get neglected Mm. while we're providing and while we're seeing other people and taking care of people's needs. Just wondering what your journey has been when it comes to that. How did you know that? Maybe because I'm executive director of a nonprofit. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so I made the decision in 2013 to to leave Girls on the Run. And a lot of it, everybody that's a founder goes through this, or most people do. Mm. I started it for that connection with the girls. And like we just spoke of, there was a, it's not transactional. It's a both and. We both all benefited from it. Mm-hmm. And at some point when you get moved into the day-to-day operations, that's just not where my joy lives, right. you know, in managing things and right. infrastructure. So it just became time for me to leave. You know, yeah. I I couldn't be just a coach at Girls on the Run. I was kind of the founder. You know, right. there was a role attached to that. Right. So I left and it was a good decision both for me and the org because now the org we know will live past my life, which is yeah. great. Yeah. And I've been able to move into other fun things. Yeah. Many fun things, right? Mm-hmm. Will you talk about the Red Boot Way? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, after I left Girls on the Run, I went to Washington, D.C. with the one suit that I owned and served on this commission that was looking at ways we could bridge this political divide. Now, this was 2013, so before a lot of what's happened over the last several mm-hmm. years, and uh, left very discouraged because mm-hmm. there was no discussion about the internal discussion that needs to happen. You know, what role do I have in othering people? You know, what am I doing mm-hmm. to to other the other person, to polarize things? So I decided to interview Americans about that. So I drove from Charlotte to Las Vegas and back and interviewed hundreds of people about what they thought was at the root of all this discontent. And I came Mm -hmm. back really listening and understanding that a lot of it was based on race. You know, there was definitely a racial divide that was kind of parading as a political divide, but maybe underneath it all was, was a lot of race. And uh, so thought I would start this, place where we could have some conversations and those are still going on, although I'm not involved with that either. Um, and I'm uh, really right now at this stage of my life doing more internal work. I feel like there's a sort of circle 
Mm-hmm. You know, I do this internal work and then I begin to get outside myself and do yeah. some cultural environmental work. And then I come back around, you know, yeah. each time with more knowledge, I guess. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And what a beautiful cycle that is. Mm-hmm. How are you doing with doing internal work and finding people who will let you not be okay? Mm. So... I think I'm pretty lucky that way. I've been, I've, I've not lucky. I don't know whether it's just what I attract. I attract people that tell me like it is. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And are maybe more comfortable with other people's discomfort than I am with my own. Yeah. And they just let me kind of mull in that. So there's no trying to fix me. I'm working right now with a wonderful woman who is a, kind of a Hindi guru. I mean, she's just incredible lady. Mm. And we met through girls on the run and she just lets me, we just work through things and she doesn't fix me. She just shares. And I think that's been the greatest gift that this world has taught me so far is that I'm not here to fix, save or correct other people. Amen. But me, but to hold space for them to grow into their own. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. And finding people who don't want to be around you just because you're Molly Barker, mm-hmm. right? They want to be with you mm-hmm. who you are, not because of the name. Mm-hmm. That, and, right, yeah. and, and nobody needs to fix you. Like how to, mm-hmm. just to sit with you. Yeah, I mean, actually there's nothing, to, you know, I don't think there's really any fixing necessary. Right. Um, it's just kind of unveiling all of the things that uh, I appear to make me broken. Right. And it's safe yeah. to do that, which means the inner circle has to be people who are absolutely for you. Yes. Yeah. That's a really good point. And, you know, that's something the last several years has taught me, too, about boundaries. Um, uh, that, as a child, is something that were very fuzzy for me. Yeah. So it's taken me a long time to, to figure out how to develop those because I have sometimes put myself in harm's way both emotionally and even physically, because I, like you said, wasn't around people that really wanted the best for me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. with your first imprint in life, being being around your mom, who at the time that was her best, but it wasn't in your best, mm-hmm. wasn't in your best interest, mm-hmm. and that's how you first get used to it, it's really easy to be around people who are toxic. Oh. And we don't even notice, because it's, right, you just go into a role. Right. Well, you know, what I found is I initially, for many years, I was, that's all I had around me were toxic relationships yeah. because that's what was most comfortable. It's what I knew. Right. You know, and uh, it took a lot of, I, I don't know if learning, yeah, learning, understanding mm-hmm. my patterns, my coping mechanisms mm-hmm. to get out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and we don't generally learn that the first go round, right? It happens a whole lot, and th- and that's to me where the grace comes in, having people around you who are for you and rooting for you and what you're doing, right? Because the work you do is so important, and the work that any any of us do is really important. And so, without without having that level of support, it's really limiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so do you. Do you kind of like you kind of ebb and flow with how much support you need or what type of support you're needing in order to continue your work? Yeah, that's a great question. I need to think about that 
for a minute. I think now that I'm 60, I start to see a, another pattern, this sort of, you know, outward facing, doing, 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 and then this sort of return to internal work and mm. coming around. And with the outward facing, there's a more extroverted me, one that's more engaged with the outside world. Right which can mean lots of people, you know, like public speaking, writing yeah. books, whatever. Yeah. And then this internal work comes back around and that group seems to reduce down to like five people. Right. And it even for me over the last few years, as you know, I went to Marfa, Texas. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's including uh, a shutting down even environmentally, you know, right. getting isolated or quiet. Yeah. And I'm so pr- lucky that I can do that. Right. I mean, I have a lifestyle that allows me to do that. Yeah, you set that up that you were able to to yeah. be a nomad and mm-hmm. figure stuff out, which is, yeah. which is, yeah. When you don't own a lot of stuff and it all fits in your car, you can pretty much get up and go, yeah. you know, and you don't own a house. You know, these things mm-hmm. make it easier to move around. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely advantages to that. You know, you and I are connected on, on Facebook, and I, I kind of watch your ability to put your truth out there, be vulnerable, and people's responses to you. Speaking of toxicity in that, of course, you know, people can only hear and see things through their own lens. We can only go as far as our own health. And so just want to ask you about that because there is there is that sense of, I know you've worked really hard to get healthy and not be on toxicity. And then there's a vulnerability you still have of, of speaking what I consider truth on Facebook and people coming at you with mm-hmm. what their version of truth is. Mm-hmm. How, how do you navigate that? So for some reason, okay, in my 40s, I was too sensitive to it. So I would just have a trigger, a triggering response to it, you know, Mm -hmm. like literal triggering, like physically feeling it. Mm. And now it's back to that whole thing of, sorry about the dogs, there's somebody uh, walking by. That's okay. Um, Of acknowledging that they have a lens. Acknowledging that they have a lens, a life experience, memories, a past, patterns, you know, that are all theirs. And there's nothing to, to, to really fear there. You know, it's just them speaking their truth too. Right. You know? right. Um, I will say that on occasion I've had to, um, you know, like anybody else on social media, block people that I think are sharing untruths about, you know, factual untruths and things like that, if they keep yeah. coming at me. But, you know, that, that again is about having those boundaries that I feel like I've created within myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't have to, play into that yeah i think this is another way that you're inspirational at least you're for me of having the boundaries and watching you how you navigate that and that you don't personalize it and that you know a lot of times like i know i can tell my level of emotional health based on how much i personalize someone else's stuff totally yeah yeah like if i'm grounded you can throw stuff at me all day mm-hmm. long seriously but it's if the I'm truth like, yeah if i'm like feeling a little bit, ooh, you know, it's like, oh, it's time for me to take a Facebook break. And I do right. that all the time. Yeah. You know, I no, watch like, you do that. Yeah. I whenever I need it. I'm in one yeah. now, you know. All right. So, yeah. All right. What's been the hardest, your, your whole sobriety, what's been the hardest boundary for you to actually implement? 
Um, I, I still struggle with uh, the people pleasing. Mm-hmm. And um, although I have to say that the last year to two, I'm in a pretty good spot with it. Yeah, good. But um, that continues to, to sort of, mm. and then, you know, the other, you know, just being completely transparent here, I don't know any other way. Um, I struggle a little bit with some boundaries around um, uh, romantic relationships, mm-hmm. which is something that, uh, I have to listen really hard to the messages that I say in my head about that because I'm yeah. not, you know, in one. And there's a lot of ways I was raised to think that there's something wrong with me if I'm not in one, you know? Right. And um, so I'm, I'm trying, I'm sort of trying to get more neutral on that, not be so hard about that. Yeah. That's so understandable. Cause you know, that's, yeah. that's really where our childhood issues really come out. Yeah. In romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's such a message that somehow or another you're less of a woman. Yeah. If a man has not claimed you mm-hmm. in some way. And mm-hmm. so, I, I, again, I think it's another part of um, your testimony and inspiration mm-hmm. to the rest of us that um, you are just where you are mm-hmm. with it. Right. Like there's no false pretense. At all. Yeah. I mean, I really like being single and alone. Yeah. I mean, I like where the space that I've created, I like what I eat, you know, and I'm, I wonder if I'm becoming one of those, you know, kind of old fixed people, but you know, I'm not, but it it is, it is interesting, but I have very, uh, what's lively, vibrant relationships. Mm -hmm. They're just not romantic, you know, and with, with everybody, men, women, them, all of them. Right. 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 Everybody. Right. That's, that's what keeps you going. That's where you feed off of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you've learned about the people pleasing and what's happening, is there anything about that that you found really valuable about where it came from, how it originated that you could share with us? I think part of it was cultural. You know, I'm 60, mm-hmm. so I was born in 1960. And it's just the way women of my generation were raised. You know, you just please everybody else. Right. Uh, and um, it's funny, I just watched an I Love Lucy show the other day, which I don't know how I got there, but I was like, oh my God, this is what, you know, these were the shows that as a child I was watching. Right. So pleasing your partner, pleasing everybody, your children, all that. The other thing, though, I think is um, I didn't want people to know what was happening at home. Mm. So if I was the perfect kid, you right. know, if everything looked just right, yeah. then you wouldn't know what what else was going on and I, I know that I have carried that a, a lot of my life at least yeah. until I got sober yeah. I think that's a lot of why I drank was you know just I didn't want to look at those hard parts of myself yeah absolutely absolutely mm-hmm. what's something that you thought would be impossible to look at and face that once you did mm-hmm. you're like because, you know, there's certain things I ran from for 15 years that really only took 15 minutes to process. Mm-hmm. Right. Is there anything like along those lines that you you have found that was that you face issue wise and then you're like, oh, it's OK. You know, 
I think really looking at some of the trauma that I dealt with in my home, like really taking a good hard look at that and, and mm-hmm. learning the process of the amygdala and the triggering yes. of all that, yeah. you know, kind of understanding how my body, all that memory was stored yes. in my cells. Yeah. Um, I didn't look at, I, I think I was running away from that for a long time. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know I was running away from it. Yeah. It's a sensation. It is a sensation. Yeah. yeah. And I was supposed to give a speech at something. And I, this was several years ago. And I had just had a therapy appointment and we had really begun to go into that a little bit, you know, and kind of excavate some of that, mm. you know, just talk about it. And I had my first panic attack. Yeah. Uh, the day of this speech. So right. I had to call and cancel, you know, I just yeah. couldn't bring myself to do that. And um, yeah, that was kind of a cool thing to be that out of control of my own, you know, self, you know, right. so that I've actually had to start looking at some stuff. Yeah. We have to be able to be in the tension and the discomfort to get mm-hmm. better. Mm-hmm. And the message of all our lives is to, is, is to go nowhere near discomfort. Mm-hmm. Right. To do what you're talking about is, is to be perfect, to come across and to just look at other people, take care of other people and not take care of self. Mm-hmm. Right. And the irony of like that, you know, that's girls on the run and that when are we running, literally running from ourselves versus that we're running to. physically towards ourselves. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, know, you tell yeah. with, with your, with your journey about when you're running towards you, do you have enough knowledge now to know when, when you're doing which? Oh, I can tell a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And I can tell it with every behavior. Mm. You know what I mean? Like whether, yeah. it, you know, it could be meditation. I mean, am I meditating to uh, escape? Mm. You know, it's funny. Hold on just a minute. I wrote about that this morning. Uh, let me see if I can find it. That'd be great. I'd love to hear um, that. Hold on. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I wrote, I said, um, there's a difference between quieting the mind and tuning out. Mm. I'm not quite able to distinguish the difference, but I think this is where spiritual bypassing occurs and holding compassion and pain and the pain of the world differ. Wow. Do you understand what I mean? I do, but it sounds like you just read a piece from like a, a best-selling book and you're just <laughs> writing, you're just reading from your journal from this morning. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, so I can use all of all of these things to tune out. Yeah. And to spiritually bypass the suffering that's going on in the world. I can just pretend like that's not happening and be in this, you know, state all the time. Or, you know, I can be in this state and hold all of that. Right. Yeah. Such an excellent point. It's one is running thing. away from and one is being with, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. and I can feel it when I'm running. Oh my God, Kim, I can go for a run and I feel with, and then there are other times I'm just tuned out and I'm not suggesting that it's not important. Sometimes I need to tune out, True. but when that becomes the only place I live, that's when I know I'm getting right. in trouble. Right. It's probably what you're saying is that if I know I'm tuning out, whether it's watching Netflix or going yeah. for 
I'm run if I know that that's sort of agency over it in some way, so have some authority. Yes. Versus that I think that it's connection. I think it's true meditation. It's actually still more of an escape form. Yeah. Or I'm faking it. Like I'm yeah. kind of convincing myself. Right. Know? Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Hey, I meditated this morning, so it's all good. Yeah, everything's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm fine. Yeah, all right. I'm totally yeah. attuned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know with my running that um, I've gone through stages where it's disordered, right? Mm-hmm. And that there's other times where I can tell, like it's just it's spiritual. It's like the best mm-hmm. thing I do, and other times it's just as disease as when I was drinking. So, yeah. do you have that kind of experience as well? I do. Um, and, you know, it's less now with running as it is with cycling. So um, I've I'm, I'm kind of gotten into bike riding since yeah. I moved to Texas. But, yeah, there's a – there's a so it's like instead of breathing into it, it's like hammering. There's sort yeah. of a – there's not a joy. It's kind of like a dutiful thing that I have mm-hmm. to go out and do. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just not that joy. And the, yeah. that's the main difference. Yeah. So I, I think, take a break, you know, I try to take a break when I find myself getting too caught mm-hmm. up in, you know, what was my speed or any of that stuff. Right. Right. Because you're very naturally gifted athletically. Yes. And I'm very uh, competitive. So I will say yeah. that, you know, and I, I've come to appreciate that about myself. Like I love, I love going fast. It's not that I love beating people, but I love doing my best. And if my best happens to bring me a third place ribbon, <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> So, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm kind of laughing about that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I like pushing myself in that way. And, you know, it's, it is it is sort of a spiritual thing, though. Occasionally, you know, I'm like, I, I get to do this. Yeah. I'm going along for the ride. You know, yeah. I'm inside observing what mm-hmm. this body can do. Mm-hmm. They're amazing. Yeah. It's really true, especially... For, for anyone who has had some type of betrayal to their body, the irony that us paying attention to our body is the healing process where the logic would be, to me, not paying attention to my body is going, it's going to make it better. But it's not. It's embracing it. It's actually paying attention to our body. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had a odd experience this week where, you know, I'm, I'm doing this meditation course with this wonderful teacher and we were asked to eat a meal without any distraction, no music, you know, just eat a meal by yourself and experience the meal. Mm. And I honestly am not sure that I've ever done that where I like thought about the food that I was eating. I chewed the food. I yeah. swa- swallowed each, right. waited till it landed and did it again. And, you know, there's just an appreciation that comes when you realize what our yeah. bodies are doing for yeah. us. Yeah. yeah, it's so true. It makes me think about I had a therapist years ago and she had the audacity, Molly, to ask me to pay attention to my breathing. Yeah. And I about punched her in the throat. Right? Because it felt that much like a violation that I'm supposed to pay like I just didn't know how to pay attention to myself, much less somebody watched me pay attention to myself. Yeah. Like that felt so foreign to me. Like it it took a little while to get used to that. Now I teach people that all the time because how do you know you're like we feel, we feel God's presence in the present moment totally. and we do a thousand things a day to not be present. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I was, I'm working on another project with a love of woman who's a good bit younger than me. And you and I having this discussion is so normal to me. 
Right. And I feel so blessed. Like it can bring mm-hmm. tears to my eyes, you know, mm-hmm. that I'm able, the people that I'm with, we have discussions like this that are yeah. very entertaining to me because I love going deep. Right. Um, but not everybody has that in their lives, mm. you know, and I've mm-hmm. forgotten that sometimes, you know, right. that, you know, we talk about what the latest Netflix show or, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's like, that's, if that's where a person is, I just love the life that I have though, where I can go really yeah. deep on stuff. Yeah. There is something really special about talking to someone about, about their amygdala and the limbic system and understanding the trauma responses. And there's a connection in that. Mm-hmm. And that um, I think is a connection we were looking for through drinking. Yeah. You know? Yes, yes. Yeah. And that it becomes something very beautiful that we can understand that if you looked at me and you said, I'm in a fight response, I need to stop this conversation. Like, that's my language. Mm-hmm. And not everybody speaks that. No, I know. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so it's just always great when I can talk to somebody who understands what their amygdala is and has, and again, has some authority over it. And so that means that they are less likely to come at me because they're struggling. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's safety. That's a really brilliant way to look at that. You've just given me some language around something. So wow, that's great. I have a, a long lasting friendship with a, with a guy. We've known each other forever. And I have over the years occasionally had to say, you know what? I need to, I can't communicate for a week. I just need to turn mm. it off. You know, I yeah. just can't communicate with you. Yeah. And he's just like, okay, yeah. no big deal. but it's that thing is going on. I'm getting overwhelmed, to, mm-hmm. you know, by mm-hmm. things in general. And I just don't have time for the friendship. Yeah. And that, I, you know, I can't manage the friendship, I guess. And right. we just That's really right. cool with it, you know? Yeah. 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 But you know, someone's had to do their own work to not personalize yeah. that. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So, or is a twelve-step program a part of your your life actively now? Not as much. Yeah, um, yeah I, when I went to Marfa, I got involved there, mm-hmm. um, and I think COVID has definitely sort of. I know it, it's perfectly ex- easy to get online and get get to meetings and things like that, but um, just hasn't. You know, being really honest here, it hasn't been. Um, yeah. It's funny, I do feel sometimes some guilt about that, you know. Um, And I also feel like I am doing a lot of spiritual and internal work otherwise. So, you know, I'm not straying far. That may be me in some kind of, what's the word, Um, denial. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I haven't been much. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I have an ebb and a flow with that also. It's really interesting to me. Yeah. No, that's interesting. It's a good point. And really, my heart goes out to people who, especially newcomers, who are trying to maintain sobriety through Zoom meetings. It was so much a part of my early sobriety to the meeting after the meeting, the meeting before the meeting. Oh, yeah. So much a part of, and people aren't able to do that right now. Mm -mm. It's not the same. It's just not the same Mm -mm. to do a Zoom meeting. I do have a great uh, network of, people like you and, you know, yeah. people that are in sobriety that I, that, that, I mean, those are, frankly, those are in that circle of five, right. you know what I mean? There's yeah. that connection. So, yeah. you know, while the conversations might not be happening in officially in rooms, they're happening all the time. 
True. That's really, really, really true. Yeah. And then how we support each other. And again, from my belief in anything, whether it's my, any relationship I'm in, if it looks the same now at 25 years as it did up year one, something's wrong. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. So it's really okay that I don't attend meetings the same way that it looks a little bit different. Yeah. 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 But even just that statement, if a relationship is the exact same as it was, that's the one thing that I do love about my kids. Oh my God. They've held me firm through uh, COVID big time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that relate those relationships just continue to develop and right. oh my God, they just get better. Or not better, yeah. just full full. They're just full. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, it seemed like you give them not give them a probably wrong way of putting it, but there's just such an openness. Like mm-hmm. I've never watched you in all these years I've known you tell them who they have to be. That is true. That is true. And uh uh, I'm actually working on a project with uh, an, an organization that's looking at how we can support parents with kids who are innovators and out of the boxer people. You know, yes, because it's so necessary. It's hard being that parent. Yeah, yeah. So my kids didn't give me a whole lot of choice around that either. You know? Right. So we learned together. We, yeah. we went through that together. But yeah, there were a lot of really scary dark nights, but. Mm. I just I believe in that higher power. Like I trust mm-hmm. in the, the bigness of things. That mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. What were, was the most challenging for you with raising uh, them, with them being so out of the box? For sure. Um, taking non-traditional educational paths. Yeah. So, you know, everything, usually most people go to junior high school or middle school and then high school and then some go to college, but yeah, both of mine sort of strayed a little bit from the high school way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that was some experimentation with alcohol and drugs too. Right. Sure. And, uh, you know, there was just all kinds of experimentation during those years. They were trying right. to land with who they are. Yeah. So, uh, you know, in all transparency too, I'm not here to name that for them. So they're right, still, sure. we're all trying to land where we are, you know, right, so absolutely. Yeah. I'm at now at the point where I'm just appreciating the relationship that we have and the way we hold space for each other. So you went from a little girl watching a mom as an active alcoholic mm-hmm. to teenager, active alcoholic, your mom having to watch that. Yeah. And to now be a grown woman, a very, heart-centered mom who watches her children with their path of alcohol. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And they'll do the same. They'll have to go through, yeah, that's right. through it with the same, you know, and we talk about it and I can't name it for them. Yeah. You know, they're going right. to have to name what that is. And, yeah. you know, uh, um, yeah, that's the way it is. So yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't give it a judgment whether it, their use is bad or misuse or right. you know anything at this point. They both, are, yeah. you know, seem appear to be doing well, but yeah. so did I. Right. You know, right. so, like, <laughs> so I just I just tr- trust them, and they always know, always know that they have a place to come to. Yeah. What would yeah. you? I love your wording on that. I love your way you parent. What would you say to any parent listening right now who? It's really struggling where, where their young adults are. How would you speak into that? Um, 
I would say, um, try, you know, this sounds so ridiculous, but like the universe is always conspiring in our favor. Mm-hmm. I really believe that. So to yeah. trust in the process and one thing that I know that will benefit my children is I was always available to them to listen for them to share anything with, and there were no horror faces. You know, I didn't mm. take in deep breaths or mm. act horrified. Right. You know, uh, and, and later, if I needed to have a conversation about it, I would. But initial, all the initial conversations were just being completely available and open to whatever they said wow. yeah. and not fixing and saving in that moment. Right. Yeah. The other thing I hear, I hear you talk about that is that you did something I think it's so beautiful is that you didn't expect your kids to act a certain way so that you could feel better. Yeah. And that was a little bit scary being the founder of this girls organization, you know, Mm -hmm. got a phone call from a parent one time sharing with me something that my daughter had done, you know, and she was disapproving of it. Oh, she was disapproving (laughs) of it. Yeah. Yeah. She was disapproving of my daughter's behavior. And I remember listening to that and going, okay, thank you. You know, and, and like, you know, feeling like, well, maybe I'm a terrible parent for what my daughter did. What she mm. did was not anything that I would have labeled as bad or good, but it was bad for this parent, you know? Right. So feeling afraid that I would be judged by the behavior of my children. Right. Right. And I had to let that go real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. they're your own people, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's something that's really difficult for parents and understandably, but to really put that on somebody else that, and this isn't marriage, this isn't anything. When I yeah. need you to act a certain way so that I can feel better, yeah. things are not going to go well yeah. in any relationship. Mm-mm. No, and, you know, it's that illusion of control. Yeah. We don't, you know, we really, I think, I think in, in looking at the biggest picture of all, that illusion of control is at the base of a lot of everything. You know, yeah. if I can control my environment, if I can control this person, if I mm-hmm. can control this uh, trauma response, if I mm-hmm. can control all this, then mm-hmm. then I'll be okay. Right. Yeah. No, I think it's an excellent point in the fear that's within that and the freedom that comes from actually not needing to control. Yeah. But how do you, I, I could never convince somebody that. No one could have convinced me of that until I actually had to experience it. And then, you know, what's really cool, Kim, usually when I let go of control, I mean, really, when I'm truly just let go, that's when the magic happens. That's when the magic happens. That's, that's right. when the magic happens. Because yeah. the the God, whatever, you know, whatever language one wants to use, right. can't, has a hard time responding when I'm trying to control everything. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, they're waiting. They're yeah. just waiting for you to let up so they can intercede. They can do something, yeah. you know. It's so funny. Yeah, it's true. And I, I do think that's one of the principles and logics within AA that I truly enjoy that I learned is for me, I got taught to show up and then get out of the way. Yeah. 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 But first I had to know I was worthy of showing up. Yes. Right. And that took a long time. And then to know how to what that really means to get out of the way, mm-hmm. to, let the, to let the magic happen. I know. Yeah, and I think you probably have really mastered that with all these organizations you've started, right? And that trusting 
because really it's a huge thing to, you know, nonprofit is a, is a baby and you raise this baby and then to walk away and trust other people to raise, continue raising your child. Mm-hmm. But you know, that's where that internal work comes. So here's part of the cycle too. And I've noticed that over the last four to five years with all the politics going on in the world, mm. I go through these periods of introspection where I come out of them very grounded very yeah. trusting, very, very knowing mm. that the unit, I'm okay and that it's going to be okay. You know, there's a, yeah. yeah. And then I come back out into the world and I carry that with me for a period of time. Right. The magic is happening left and right. Mm. And then if I don't keep the practice going of whatever it was that I was doing over here during the introspection, I get pulled back into the dark. Yeah of the world. And that's what's happened. That's been the greatest lesson over the last four years Mm. for me is that I was becoming the thing that I'm, that I did not like that I saw around me. Yeah. That's powerful. I was becoming it. So it's now a time for me to remember that I'm not the darkness. Right. Yeah. And there's an empathy that can happen in that. Yeah. But that it's not who you really are. No. Yeah. No. Yeah, and that work of social justice, what does that look like if we're coming mm-hmm. from that grounded, light-filled space rather than that, you know, blaming, mm-hmm. angry space? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. still, I don't have that mastered and don't know that I ever will. You yeah. know, it's hard, yeah. Yeah, I do think that's part of your specialty and what I've learned from you, and and that is, you know, we all know blame and responsibility don't know each other. They've never met. And so when there's blaming and victimization, that that's, that's the pattern, that's the cycle, right? Like anybody's in an active addiction, they are blaming, whether it is imploding or exploding. It's the responsibility, personal responsibility that we take that allows us to step into the magic and that we actually go towards social justice instead mm-hmm. of being caught in the injustice. Yes. Yes, but and it's a practice because I feel like I was, in the last year, found myself being pulled into literally in my heart mm. being pulled into hating. Yeah. I don't, you know, and I don't, I don't, I, that, that is not a part of that. Mm. I don't want that. Yeah. You know, so I'm becoming the thing that I, that I don't want. Right. Yeah. And I, that I'm resisting so right. greatly, you know, right. So it does take a lot of, daily practice to mm-hmm. stay grounded mm-hmm. in that mm-hmm. other thing. You yeah, know? and that's the introspection. Like, I can't hate myself no. and look at myself, right? Like, I can't do I can't do both because truly we can't hate self. Like, if you know who you really are, you, there's no hate. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's I'm so much. I'm being pulled into the illusion of hate, actually. That's right, that's yeah. right. And I love mm-hmm. the fact that you are so open and vulnerable about the process and that um, you've never had a pretense, like you've got it completely going on. Like mm-hmm. it is such a learning process and that you've, you've just evolved through all of it and been honest, as honest as you could be through all this. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think there's anything to, to gain. I, there's nothing to lose by being honest. Yeah. You know, I don't have to remember what I said yesterday. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's so liberating to be yeah. honest. You know so what I mean? much freedom in that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, what what was your biggest surprise about your experience with Girls on the Run, being the founder of Girls on the Run? Oh my gosh, 
the biggest surprise has definitely hmm. I think the biggest surprise is how such a little kernel of an idea that was born of, you know, in like a few of the neurons in my brain that came from my heart to my brain. Yeah. Is now, you know, experienced by millions of people. Yes. You know, it was, it was in the void. Like there was, it did not exist. Right. And how that can now exist in the lives of literally millions of people. That is kind of mind blowing. It is. And at the same time, that is, that's what's possible. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's really, it's, yeah, it's beautiful. It's almost too much to take in. It is. Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever fully cap get it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, and I really do mean this. One of the biggest honors I've had out of all the amazing things I've been able to do in my sobriety is having two little girls pick me to be part of their girls on the run, like to run the race with them. So cool. Like that's such a big deal, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That they would want to me to be the one beside them yelling at them. Well, I'm probably not supposed to yell at them, but I do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like course. it's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And all that came from you having having the idea and then not being against yourself. Because when we're against ourselves, we're against the ideas that come. Mm-hmm. And that you were um, able to know that God is for you, that the universe is for you, and that you started this. And st- over 2 million girls that we know about are impacted. Yeah. You know, the, what's interesting is I honestly felt like it it was already in existence. Mm. And I just saw, I I just saw it and brought it into written form. Yeah. You know, this thing has already been in existence. It's very simple. It's just creating a space where, where love and light can Mm. thrive. Yeah. It's definitely love and light. Yeah. Curiosity. Mm -hmm. Did you notice over time that this started off as very much a Caucasian organization Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. did it evolve yeah. As time went with that when it came to, yeah. to race. Yeah. So a lot of it was, I started it where um, I knew people. Right. You know, and my world was very small. When I, st- I mean, very small, very white when I started mm-hmm. it. So I started it at Charlotte Country Day School, which well, was that makes sense. white. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the next place was the Harris YMCA. Yeah. And then it was Eastover. Yeah. And then... Uh, Blythe, actually Blythe and uh, the McCrory Y. So we sort of, you know, made an intentional reach to other areas so that we could begin mm-hmm. to kind of have more diversity within that group. And now it's it's just a beautiful. It's a mosaic. It's a mosaic of yeah. all different. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you are, you are a true inspiration. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that there's a simplicity about you of what you do in the midst of all the complexity that's within you, but there you have taken so many things and just made them so simple so that people could be a part of. And that's just absolutely beautiful. Well, thank you. I think my mind, uh, because it's can be overactive, prefers simplicity. You know, yes. like if we can get just down to the, the core of something, right? 
Mm. There's that's where again I think the magic happens. You can make yeah. it as simple as possible. Like, yeah. you know, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like that's right. simple, right? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Yeah. So we're going to throw you in the hot seat. Speaking of simple, we're going to ask some simple okay. questions and just going to put you in the therapist's hot seat. Yep. And just whatever comes to mind first. Okay. Throw it on out there. Okay. So what's the first word that comes to mind when you hear vulnerability? Grace. Hmm. Race. Yeah. Race like running or race in racial affairs? Grace. Grace. G-R-A-C-E. Grace. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like... Yeah, when I, I've been so able to be vulnerable because people have just given me so much grace around mm. that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. What is on your nightstand? Um, um, a book, an extra pair of glasses, <laughs> and a lamp. Yeah, how many extra? How many glasses do you have? I'm gonna guess I like have five two pairs. Prescription, and then I have like five <laughs> reading glasses. <laughs> I figure as much. <laughs> I'm there too, so I'm with you. I'm with yeah. you on that. <laughs> what surprises people the most about you? Um. Oh my gosh, what would that be? I would say how little I am. Yeah. Okay. I think a lot of people, I've heard that a lot. When I show up, people think that I'm just bigger than life or something, but you know, I'm all of about five, three and 112 pounds. <laughs> so five, four, although I think sometimes I look taller than I am, but yeah, uh-huh. I think people are just surprised. I'm a little. Yeah. Little oh, that's great. Okay. I like it. What surprises you the most about you? How, um, how fascinating my life is. Mm. It is fascinating. And that's by kind of like by design, like I've made it. And, you know, like I live a fascinating, I love my fascinating life. Yeah. And that comes from being kind of a wildly curious person. Mm -hmm. Wildly curious. What a great statement. I love that. I love that. So I assume you watch some TV at some point during mm-hmm. your wildly fascinating, curious life. Okay. So what is your favorite binge worthy show? Um, Queer Eye. Yeah. I love those guys. I love what they do with, you know, they just come and have great fun with people. Right. Um, I'd say that's, that's been a bingey one. And uh, uh, Schitt's Creek. I kind yeah. of binge watched on that as well. Yeah. yeah brilliantly written. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So people either love it or they don't love it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. It's great. Okay. Last question. What does your playlist reveal about you? My um, all or nothing kind of life. So I either have very spiritual kind of meditative Mm -hmm. music that's very calming or I have like completely trance, dance, up, upbeat music right. that just would hype a person up. There's there's just nothing in between. No, I, that makes sense with you. I'm, I love that. I love that. Yeah. yeah. So Molly, I'm sure our audience already knows who you are, how to find you, but in case they don't, in case this is their introduction to you, let us everybody know whether it's Facebook or Instagram handle, your website, how can people drink more of Molly Barker? Nice. It's 
Best way is just through my website, mollybarker.com. And then I'll be back on Facebook in a few weeks. Uh, so just look up Molly Barker. Uh, and I can't remember what my profile pick is. It's black and white, I think. But anyway, uh, where I'm going to spend most of my time. All right. That's good. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't thank you enough. I love you. I've always loved you. I've always been inspired by you. And I just appreciate how honest you are and just how amazing you are just by being who you are. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. This was such a privilege. Yeah, thank you. It was a privilege for me to be a part of this interview. So to our audience, to all of you, I'm sure you heard something today that flipped your lid. I'm also praying that you heard something that helped you reconnect to who you really are. Take care of yourselves. Thank you for listening to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Please subscribe, rate, and share. You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram at KB Honeycutt. To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit butyourmotherlovesyou.com. Remember, no matter what, treat yourself well today. <laughs>